Good afternoon, this is Quintus Curtius here, and it's August 1st, 2021. And I haven't done a podcast in a while, so I thought I would do one here because I got a very interesting email from a reader yesterday with a serious question, a very serious question. And it involves a question about how to cope with the loss of a child, how to cope with the loss of a child, which is certainly one of the most terrible things that a parent can can ever experience. And I, uh, you know, I don't I don't have any children, and so I can't relate to this personally. But I have had a couple clients over the years who have uh, suffered through the loss of a a young child, and. Uh, without a doubt, it's a terrible, terrible thing. I had one client who was able to cope with it. And then there was another woman, a very, uh, very intelligent, successful nurse. And she literally just descended into a nervous breakdown that she was unable to get out of to the extent where she couldn't even take care of herself. She was so crippled by grief that she just lost control of her faculties. Very sad, very, very sad to see it. But it can happen. It can happen, and that's why we have to learn how to be strong of mind and body so that we can cope with the inevitable, the inevitable disasters and calamities that fortune can throw at us. So let me read his email first, and I'll I'll modify it a little bit to preserve the privacy, but... He says, uh, Mr. Curtius, I've read your blog from time to time. And, you know, he says, I know you have a wide knowledge of philosophy and observations on life, blah, 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 blah. And he says, uh, I have a child with chronic health issues who statistically will probably not survive to adulthood. His age is in the high single digits now. Um his four-year-old brother collapsed and died unexpectedly this week. And he says that they had no advanced knowledge that this would happen. And he says it's he can't even begin to describe the shock that his uh, uh, the decedent's siblings uh, and, and, and his parents, himself and his wife, have experienced from this. And he said at first it was just shock. And now after a few more days, they're seeing the ripple effects that this is going to have on the family. And he says, do you have any words of wisdom that have come to your mind for this kind of situation? And this is such a great, great question. And and it's just one that hopefully most of us will not have to deal with. But inevitably, these things happen. But the first thing that popped into my mind was the old literary form of the consolation in Latin, consolatio. And this was um, this was an accepted literary form in ancient times, uh, the consolation. It was a an, an essay or a, or a letter written by someone to someone else, either to console them in their hour of grief, or to console themselves. And I think they served both purposes. And a lot of the major writers wrote them. Seneca, I think, wrote one. I think Cicero wrote one. Uh, but the one that I find maybe most applicable to this specific scenario is one that was written by the biographer Plutarch, the Greek biographer Plutarch. And it's a very, very good consolation. It's also not very long, uh, which is an advantage. And you can find this in any 
standard edition of his Moralia. Um, the one I have is the Penguin, the Penguin Classics edition of Plutarch's Essays, they call it. But it's, it's really just an abridged version of the Moralia. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about this letter of consolation, what the background to it is and how it came about, all those things. Uh, so the background is that um, Plutarch's baby daughter, a, uh, a beloved two-year-old uh, named after her mother, uh, Timoxena. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's a Greek name, T-I-M-O-X-E-N-A. And uh, she died at the age of two years while Plutarch was away from home on business. And Plutarch's wife sent a, um, a courier off to Athens with the, um, the bad news. But the, uh, the courier missed Plutarch. He happened to be somewhere else. And she had to, in those days, you know, distances of travel obviously were, were different. So she could not actually locate him immediately. And she had to make the funeral arrangements for herself on her own. But um, Plutarch eventually found out. And when he did, he wrote his wife a letter of consolation. Now, it's probably true that that uh, this letter was intended at some point for publication. But it's a very, very warm, a very, very uh, sentimental letter that I think has a lot of good lessons in it and points that we can learn from. So I thought the best way to do this was to read the relevant passages and then talk a little bit about those. So here I am going to read from Plutarch's letter of consolation to his wife. And again, this is, I'm reading excerpts here. Uh, so he says, um, It is noticeable that most, most mothers take their children into their arms as if they were playthings, after others have cleaned them and smartened them up. And then if the children die, these mothers wallow in empty and decent grief. They are not motivated by warmth of feeling, which is a reasonable and commendable emotion. Their strong inclination towards shallow beliefs, plus a dash of instinctive emotion, causes outbursts of grief which are fierce, manic, and unruly. Aesop was apparently aware of this. He said that when Zeus was distributing recognition among the gods, Grief asked for some as well, and so Zeus allowed grief to be acknowledged, but only by people who deliberately wanted to acknowledge it. This is certainly what happens at the beginning. Only an individual lets grief enter himself, but after a while it becomes a permanent sibling, a habitual presence, and then it doesn't leave however much it wants to, however much, however much one wants it to. That is why it is crucial to resist it on the threshold and not to adopt special clothing or haircuts or anything else like that, which allow it to establish a stronghold. These things challenge the mind day in and day out, make it recoil, belittle it and constrict it and imprison it, and make it, make it unresponsive and apprehensive, as if the wearing of these clothes and the adoption of these practices out of grief cut it off from laughter and light and the sociability of the table." The consequences of this affliction are physical neglect and an aversion to oiling and bathing the body and to other aspects of the daily regimen, when exactly the opposite should happen. Purely mental suffering ought to be helped by physical fitness. Mental distress abates and subsides to a great extent when it is dispersed in physical calm, as waves subside in fair weather. 
But if, as a result of a bad regimen, the body becomes sordid and foul and transmits to the mind nothing benign or beneficial, but only the harsh and unpleasant fumes of pain and distress, then even those who desire it find that recovery becomes hard to achieve. These are the kinds of disorders that take possession of the mind when it is treated so badly. Nevertheless, I have no cause to worry about the worst and most worrying disorder which occurs in such cases, the invasion of malignant women, with the cries and expressions of sympathy which they use to polish and hone distress and to prevent its being dis diminished either by external factors or of its own accord. For I know about the battles you recently had when you went to assist Theon's sister and defended her against the incursion of the women who came with their weeping and wailing, behavior which is exactly the same as fighting fire with fire. I mean... When people see a friend's house on fire, then everyone contributes what he can to put it out as quickly as possible. But when that same friend's mind is on fire, they bring fuel. And although when someone has an eye infection, people don't just don't let just anyone touch it or treat the inflammation, people who are grieving sit and let everyone who comes by prod at their running sore, so to speak, and aggravate the condition until instead of being an insignificant itching irritation, it erupts into a seriously disagreeable affliction. Anyway, I know that you will be on your guard against this. Please try, however, to use your mind as a vehicle for often returning to the time when this child of ours had not yet been born, and we had no reason to blame fortune. And then connect that time with the present, and imagine that our circumstances are no different again. You see, my dear... We will seem to regret that our child was ever born if we find more to complain about now than in the situation before her birth. We must not erase the intervening two years from our memories, but since they brought happiness and joy, we must count them as pleasant. The good was brief, but should not therefore be regarded as a long-term bad influence, and we should not be ungrateful for what we received just because our further hopes were dashed by fortune." The point is that a reverential attitude towards the gods and being charitable and uncomplaining with regard to fortune always yield a dividend which is both fine and enjoyable. And anyone who, in a situation like ours, makes a particular point of highlighting the memory of good things and turning his mind away from the dark and disturbing aspects of his life towards the bright and brilliant ones, instead either completely extinguishes whatever it is that is causing him pain or at least decreases and obscures it by blending it with its opposite. Perfume is always nice to smell, but it is also an antidote to unpleasant odors. Likewise, bearing good things in mind serves the extra purpose of essential support in times of trouble for people who are not afraid to recall good times and do not critically hold fortune entirely responsible for every bad thing that happens. And that is a condition we should avoid, the syndrome of whining if the book of our life has a single smudge while every other page is perfectly clean. I mean, you have often been told that happiness is a consequence of correctly using the rational mind for the goal of a stable state, and that if it is a chance event which causes one to deviate, this does not constitute a major reversal and does not mean that the edifice of one's life has collapsed and been demolished. 
Suppose that we, too, were to follow the usual practice of being guided by external circumstances, of keeping a tally of events due to fortune, and of relying on any casual assessment of whether or not we are happy. Even so, you should not take into consideration the current weeping and wailing of your visitors, which is trotted out on each and every occasion, prompted by pointless social customs. You would be better off bearing in mind that they, constant, they continue to envy you for your children, your home, and your way of life. As long as there are others who would gladly choose your fate, even including our present upset, it is awful for you, as the bearer of the fate, to complain and grumble instead of letting the very source of your pain bring you to the realization of how much we have to be grateful for in what we still have. Otherwise, you will resemble those people who pick out Homer's headless and tapering lines and ignore the many extensive passages of outstanding composition. If you do this and nitpickingly whine about the bad features of your life and gloss over the good points in a vague and sweeping fashion, you will be behaving like those mean and avaricious people who build up a considerable hoard and don't make use of what they get, but still moan and grumble when they get it. If you feel sorry about our daughter dying before she was able to marry and have children, then again you can find other reasons for cheering yourself up in that you have known and experienced both these states. I mean, they cannot simultaneously be, be significant and insignificant blessings, depending on whether or not one has been deprived of them. And the fact that she has gone to a place of no pain ought not to be a source of pain to us. Why should she cause us to suffer if there is nothing that can now cause her pain? Even huge losses cease to be a source of distress when the point is reached at which the objects are no longer missed and your Timoxena suffered only minor losses, since what she was familiar with and what she found pleasure in were not things of great importance. And as for things she was unaware of, which she had never entered which had never entered her mind or caught her fancy, how could she said to have lost them? All right, so that's going to conclude the passage uh, that I read from Plutarch's letter of consolation to his wife. And what are what are the, the, the key lessons that he talks about in this letter that, that I read? What are the key points? Well, he first starts out by saying that, that grief is really something that is prolonged by our own false beliefs. Grief is natural for a short period of time. But its prolongation is something that we ourselves voluntarily choose to do, and we do it because uh, out of a false belief that somehow it's going to make things better. And this is something that you'll see that uh, Cicero, Cicero also talks about in his uh, book, uh, Tusculan Disputations, uh, which is uh, coming soon, uh, when he talks about the alleviation of mental distress. It's our own false beliefs our own beliefs that somehow feeling grief or wallowing in grief is somehow going to make things better, and it never does. The other point, the second point that Plutarch brings out, which I think is very, very important, he says to his wife to avoid having professional, uh, to avoid having around you women who also are, are wailing and whining and, and beating their chests and, and engaging in ritualized behavior of uh, of grief 
because they don't help. They only hurt. When you're trying to recover yourself and recover your balance from a, a grievous event or a very, very sad, sorrowful event, the last thing you want is other people around you reminding you about it and wailing and, and whining and, and showing up at your front door, complaining about it. I mean, it's appropriate to grieve for a little bit, you know, at the funeral and to, and to, and to invest some emotional energy in that. But when people continue to show up and continue to remind you of it and continue to um, fester, uh, allow the sword to fester and don't allow it to heal, then they're not doing you any good. They're actually harming you and you should avoid hanging around such people. So Plutarch tells her to keep such women away from her. The third point that he brings out is that we should try to focus on the good. Don't focus on the fact that we only had two years with our daughter. Focus on the fact that the blessing of what we had during that time, the, the, the fact that we were able to enjoy her for two solid years is a great blessing that we were able to have. And it's, it's something that added to our lives and to our family's life. So focus on the good instead of the bad. And the fourth point, I think this is a very, very good, and I know this from personal experience, from observation, is maintain your physical fitness. He, he, this is very, very good. Uh, he, he, he points out that it's very important to wash and to bathe frequently, to not allow depression and grief to, to let allow you to, to let your personal hygiene go. And I saw this with uh, this client that years ago that I told you about, she actually got to a point where she couldn't even bathe herself. She was so depressed, she was so stricken by grief that her mother uh, had to hire a, a caretaker for her. It's very, very sad. Very, very sad. So you can't let your mind become so enmeshed and buried in grief that you fail to take care of your physical fitness. Your physical fitness is one of the things that's going to save you in moments of, of grief. Never neglect your physical fitness. That's one of the things that we've talked about over and over and over again here. And you need to hear it again and again and again. Physical fitness uh, is co-joined, is linked with mental fitness. The mind and the body are one. You've heard the, the platitude a million times. Well, guess what? It's true. It's absolutely true. And you cannot allow your hygiene to go. Because once you do that, it's a slippery slope to complete ruin. And then finally, Plutarch ends with the admonition to be grateful, to feel gratitude for the little things, to feel gratitude for what you have rather than what you don't have. And I will, Plutarch didn't discuss in, 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 in his, in this essay, but this is something that I, I learned from, I, I just finished this biography of the showman P.T. Barnum. Very good biography. And he had many, many reverses in his life. He had five fires that destroyed his museums. He lost a, a, uh, he lost a daughter who was very young. And he, his way of coping was to rely on his religious faith. And he was a, a religious guy. And that may work for some people also. He, he took the position of, you know what? It's not my, don't let my will be done. Let God's will be done. You know, there's a kind of a, a Latin, a medieval Latin phrase, uh, fiat voluntas tua. Uh, let, you know, let, let the other's will be done. Let God's will be done. Let your will be done, literally. 
So so um, fiat voluntas tua. So that's that's basically one short way of looking at things. You can say it's not for me to judge. It's not for me to analyze the whys. I have to accept what is. I'm going to have to deal with what is. And that process of letting go, that process of just unlinking our own our own mental well-being from the order of the universe can be a can be really removing a big burden from people's minds. So if that works for you, then by all means do that. So those are my thoughts here and I hope that uh, you will share this podcast and and listen to it because that passage from Plutarch it's the type of prose that needs to be listened to several times before you can really grasp it. So I would encourage you to to listen to that passage several times and ask yourself what does it mean to me? Don't ask yourself what it means to someone else. What do you think about it? What does it mean to you? And hopefully you'll be able to incorporate these bits of uh, wisdom and consolation into your own situation. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.